Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Why do people go bald? Why are baboons bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant, Dave Ansell and Chris Smith. Now, Ken says he suffers from bags under his eyes. He has seen the creams that you can buy, which are all really expensive. But the idea of this doesn't appeal to him. Anyway, he heard that allegedly mustard can have the same effect, tightening the skin. People have got very serious about bags under the eyes and why they get worse when you are deprived of sleep, like I am at the moment. The one suggestion is because when you lay flat at night time, it means that the fluid which collects in tissue, because all our blood vessels that supply tissues are a bit leaky and they squirt fluid into the tissue, some of that fluid doesn't all get reabsorbed into the blood vessel. It goes into a second group of uh, vessels called lymphatics. And it tends to be absorbed better when you are recumbent than when you're upright. Mm. And so people say that when you you lay flat, you reabsorb any of the fluid that accumulates. And then when you wake up in the morning, you've had a good night's sleep. There's no fluid to pool in the Mm. tissue, so it doesn't look puffy and swollen. Whereas if you're upright with your eyes open all night, it doesn't drain the fluid away very efficiently. And that's why you get these bags. And over time, if you have them chronically, it can stretch the skin and you can get sort of saggy under the eyes. Mm. That's also a consequence of your skin getting a bit less stretchy due to the aging effect. Mm. But there are various things that people suggest can tone up skin. Um, I don't know of any evidence that mustard actually works. Perhaps Dave can comment on that in a second. But what we do know is that the the reason skin gets saggy is because it loses its elastic fibers. And the composition of skin is two major proteins. One's called collagen, which is fairly tough and stiff. And then there's a second one called elastin, which is stretchy and elasticy. And as you get older... Both of those things are lost, but you lose more elastin than you do collagen, so the skin gets saggier, and that's why you get wrinkles, because mm. the skin, instead of being pulled flat, goes a bit jowly. Mm. What about you, Dave? What I you can't that? think of any reason why mustard would help. All I can think it would do is probably irritate your eyes slightly. I don't know whether that would have any effect on the bags. <laughs> Right, let's go to our next one now. Um, June has asked, what sort of food did European settlers discover in America that had not been seen before? Dave, you're into food, aren't you? I like food. Yeah, there's all sorts of things which they discovered in in the Americas in general. Um, The really famous one is potatoes, which I think Sir Walter Raleigh is supposed to have brought back, although I think actually someone may have brought it back earlier than that. And then again in the potato family, tomatoes... Uh, I think um, chilies are also in a similar family, and they're coming from the, the Mexico region. Um, chocolate, of course, is... Myers started off with chocolate. In mm. fact, there was a story recently that um, they may have accidentally invented chocolate when trying to make beer, which is <laughs> coming from the um, theory that everything comes from people trying to get drunk. <laughs> um, or feel better. <laughs> one or the other. Um, there's also maize, or sweet corn's a kind of maize. That's a really big food crop these days, which is coming from the uh, America. I think turkeys are native to the Americas as well. 
Um, we've got a couple of medical questions, Chris. The two questions are, um, can we ask you about cellulitis and penicillin poisoning? And also, um, there's one here, KJ has said, uh, I've asked before, never been lucky enough to get an answer. Could you ask the doc, please, the symptoms of asbestosis? Well, let, let's talk about what cellulitis is because it's not to be muddled up with cellulite, which is the thing that makes your skin look a bit dimpled mm. where it's on the backs of your legs or your bum. Um, cellulitis is inflammation of the soft tissues, usually of the lower limbs. It usually affects your, your lower legs, and it's usually caused by streptococcus. So streptococcus pyogenes, the same group A strep that can infect your throat and cause a sore throat, and it causes this spreading red flare on the skin mm-hmm. and when you touch the affected skin it's often very tense it's red it's hot and it's very very tender and untreated and un- unchecked it, it can be fatal mm-hmm. so if you see this happening it's very important to see a doctor but the treatment of choice is to give penicillin because streptococcus pyogenes is very sensitive to penicillin and you don't want to use bigger gun antibiotics than that because they can cause antibiotic associated diarrhea problems like C. diff mm. and they can also encourage you to get antibiotic resistance mm. so you end up with superbugs so penicillin is a very good choice it's very well tolerated with very few side effects and normally high dose penicillin is given to people with cellulitis the exception is if people have an allergy to penicillin and that usually manifests as a rash and people have problems such as red blotchy skin Mm. and occasionally it can cause more severe symptoms but usually at the first signs of any kind of allergy symptom developing and most people who've had penicillin at some time in their life know that they're allergic to it so they don't get given it at the first signs it develops then doctors will switch the person to an an appropriate antibiotic which has a different molecular structure so there shouldn't be any effects uh, like the penicillin reaction and they'll choose an antibiotic which is guaranteed to be as good as penicillin at getting rid of that thing so you shouldn't be able to get penicillin poisoning i would hope that wouldn't happen Mm. but i would suspect the person's asking about allergy Mm. and we always ask a patient are you allergic to anything in hospital because these drugs can be serious and these reactions can be serious so it's important to to make sure people aren't allergic to things in the first place Mm-hmm. Right, asbestosis, um, one of those um, nasty diseases that claims the lives of many. Um, t- um, please, could the doctor tell me of the symptoms, please? Um, almost impossible, because asbestos used to be used universally um, about 50, 40 years ago, up until as recently as about 20 or 30 years ago, I think. Um, and the reason asbestos is very bad is because the fibres of asbestos, it's a mineral, by the way, you mine it, The fibres, when they break, they don't just turn into dust. They break into thinner and thinner, tiny little spindles. And they get taken up into cells, and they seem to cause chronic injury to tissue. So if you breathe them in, they get right down into the bottom of the lung, and they continuously injure tissue, and they cause the tissue to keep trying to repair itself. So they provoke low-grade inflammation. And doctors think that that continuous inflammation causes cells to keep dividing and dividing to repair the damage, the inflammation. And this then triggers the cells to mutate or to develop cancerous changes over time. And that's why asbestos can cause lung cancer. And the effect multiplies if you smoke. So smoking plus asbestos exposure is 100 times worse than just one or the other alone. I think you have 100 times increased risk of lung cancer. But asbestos is also linked to another kind of very rare tumour, which is called a mesothelioma. And mesothelium are the layers that surround the lungs. They're your pleura. Mm-hmm. And they're a, they're a thin, skiddy, slidy membrane that slides over each other very easily, which is how you breathe. But the asbestos seems to trigger the same cancerous changes that it can trigger in lungs mm. in that membrane. And this causes a kind of tumour called a mesothelioma. And it's very, very rare and virtually only ever seen in people with a history of asbestos exposure. Mm. But again, very hard to detect until 
you've actually got quite advanced disease. And then the other thing asbestos can do is to cause lung fibrosis because the inflammation it triggers doesn't always culminate in a cancer, but it can culminate in the deposition of fibrous tissue, thick fibers in the lungs. This makes the lungs stiff and rigid, so it's much harder for you to get gas in and out of the body because the membrane over which you would want to put oxygen into your blood and collect carbon dioxide from the blood is much thicker. Because it's thicker, the gases can't move so easily, so your breathing effort is less efficient. Mm. And so you end up being out of breath all the time, effectively. So it can be linked to fibrosis. So there's several things that asbestos can do if you're exposed to it. But again, it's difficult because not everyone will get that. And sure. Some people with very low exposure will get it. Other people with much higher exposure won't necessarily. But what we know is, on average, it is bad, and that's why it's been banned and people are told to take care with asbestos. Yeah. What about if you've got, say, an asbestos roof on your shed or something? Well, it's actually very, very safe if you leave it alone. The sure. damage with asbestos is when you're working with it, putting it in in the first place, mm. or you're breaking it down, you're taking it away. Mm. So the advice that's given is if you're going to do anything near asbestos, get proper help and advice. Wear face masks and respiratory guards so that you can't breathe the dust in, and also make it wet because the particles can only float up in the air and be breathed in by you if they're light. Mm. And if you soak it and damp it down, which is what the professionals always do, it keeps the fibres stuck together and it stops them floating off in this aerosol effect and it means you're much less likely to breathe any of it in. So, you know, try and avoid going near asbestos and fiddling with it. As long as you don't fiddle with it, it should be fine. But if you have to do anything with it in some kind of emergency, try and protect your airway, nose and mouth, and make it wet before you do anything with it. All right. Um, Dr. Dave, we've got one here. Mark in Bletchley wants to ask, how do radio telescopes work? A radio telescope, um, in the simplest case, works in a very similar way to a normal telescope. Basically, you, I mean, a normal telescope works by having a big curved mirror, a sort of concave mirror, and then that focuses all the light that hits it onto another mirror then down to your eye or a camera or something. Radio telescope works in a very similar way, but instead of using light waves, which are a kind of electromagnetic ray with a wavelength of less than a, a micrometer, they're using radio waves. So they tend to be things with a wavelength of a few centimetres. This means to get a, a decent picture, you've got to make the make the um, mirror much, much bigger. Mm. But it also means you don't have to make it so solid, so you can make it out of a mesh or something. So they tend, so they have these big dishes, which are the mirrors, and then in the middle of the dish you have a detector, sometimes several detectors, and you can build up a picture of that by pointing the dish at different directions and listening to the radio waves that come in. Um, that's the, how, the simplest kind of... Uh, it's basically just like a satellite dish, same sort of idea, oh. but much bigger. Now then they can do cleverer things, which involves, because the wave, because the frequency isn't very high, you can kind of record that all on a tape or on a computer. And you can compare that to another radio, another radio telescope down the road. And then you, well, three or four of them, and you can build up a picture by joining those all up together. You can effectively make it like a much, much bigger radio telescope. So the size of the area which is covered by all your radio telescopes. So you can put them all together and make a huge radio telescope, even the size of the Earth are the biggest ones. Gosh. So by putting together lots of different radio telescopes, you can get effectively a huge radio telescope and get much, much better, finer details. So in fact, the finest detail we can see out in space is actually using radio telescopes. So basically they're just radios which are very, very directional and listening to the radio coming from that direction. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Thank you for that. We have Tony on uh, the phone. Hello, Tony. Hello, Sue. Here's uh, the lovely Dr. Dave for you. What's your question, Tony? Really, it's about lightning. Why, you know, actually, why, how and why do clouds make lightning? And do other planets have lightning? 
Uh, it is static electricity, is it? It's, I think it's similar to static electricity. It normally occurs in thunderstorms where you've got big raindrops and air rushing, holding them up. So you get air rushing upwards, holding the raindrops up. And so you're basically getting air rubbing on these raindrops. In a similar way to if you rub two things together, like your hair and a nylon jumper, that will charge, move electrons, I think, from your hair onto the nylon jumper and charge it up. Um, I'm not sure which way, the air, whether the air is charging or the water is charging, but it'll charge up the air a bit, and then the water droplets are charged, and then they move apart, and so and then that is pulling apart, and building up a really really large voltage, and then the kind of then the charges redistribute, and eventually they end up sort of sparking back again, like the sparks when you move when you move the nylon jumper across your head, um, in the lightning which you can see and which you're used to, and makes huge noise and a great big flash. Um, you do get lightning on other planets, um, definitely on Jupiter, because I've talked to some guys who, in their back gardens, have basically built little tiny radio telescopes. They don't have to be very sophisticated, and if you point them at Jupiter, you can actually hear the lightning on Jupiter. Wow! <laughs> because uh, lightning, as well as giving off light and sound, it also gives off radio waves, which is you may have noticed on a um, on a when the, in a, during a lightning storm, your radio suddenly goes hiss. Yes. Just in in time with the lightning. Yeah. That's all the radio waves which lightning gives off and you can actually pick up those radio waves from jupiter in some with something quite simple which you could build in your garden with some bits of wire and a few amplifiers good lord tony yeah. you're an absolute darling thank you dear all right lovely to talk to you again thank and you so much bye bye Andy asks, what is the reaction that happens when you are stung by stinging nettles? And what can happen if you are stung repeatedly? Um, I don't know about the second one, but the way a stinging nettle works is it's got a little tiny tube, a silica tube. It's, like, it's actually kind of made out, virtually made out of rock. It kind of um, gets silica out of the ground and mm. then turns it into a little tiny tube, which is really, really sharp. On the back of that, there's a little gland which makes something called formic acid, mm. which is quite a strong acid. Um, it's also the stuff which um, ants inject you when they bite you, when why ants stink, ant bites hurt. Mm. And then when you, um, if you sort of bump into this little spike, um, it's like a hypodermic syringe, it goes into your skin, and as you move it, I think it squeezes the gland and squirts this formic acid into you. And then uh, basically it's just an irritant. I mean, it makes the um, acidity of your flesh entirely wrong, which annoys you, which makes um, all the cells not work properly. So it rushes a load of, it swells up in order to send a load of cells there, which can get rid of it and break it down so it stops doing any more damage. Um, which is why you get the little welts, mm. and then after a while you pick it up, you get rid of it, and you recover fairly soon. Itches a bit. Um, I don't know what can happen if you get stung too much. I, mean, I guess if you get too much, you could overwhelm your body's defences. But yeah. I think you'd really need to talk to a doctor for yeah. the consequences of too much stinging nettles. Yeah, I hope that's answered your question, Andy. Um, Mark in Sudbury um, on the text has said, why does digital radio use a lot more electricity than the equivalent of an FM conventional set? Basically because it's doing more work. Um, a normal um, radio set, they take the sound 
and they convert it and then they um, take a radio wave and they change it slightly in the same way, something sort of similar way to the sound. So mm. with FM, it makes the frequency a bit higher at one part of the sound mm. and a bit lower at the other part. And that's quite an easy thing to do. It doesn't take very much electronics. Um, digital radio, what it does is in order to get a lot more different channels in the same space... Um, they have to do all sorts of cunning computations on it. So you basically need a computer to encode it. It works out when there are two things happening at the same time, which your ear couldn't hear the second one, which is quieter, so it just ignores as quieter one. And there's all sorts of clever things, throws away information which you can't hear. But this requires a whole lot of processing. So basically there's a little computer inside a digital radio frantically trying to put Put, take it, take all this information which is coming through the airwaves to it and then try and put it back together into sound, which involves quite a lot of work, and so it requires more energy. With my um, Digibox with telly, I notice that the weather affects it terribly. And, you know, if the, I think on a Sunday night when I'm ready to have my night off and sit down and watch something, if the weather's not 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 so good, you know, can't see anything. And it comes and goes. Is that going to be the norm for the future? <laughs> Um, I think when, I mean, the re- digital's great because um, it do- you don't get any problems until all of a sudden it can't quite read what's a one and what's a zero. And as soon as it can't read what's a one or not what's a z- it zero, breaks, yeah. it kind of breaks almost completely. I think when they do the complete switch over, there'll be an awful lot more what's called bandwidth, a lot more kind of parts, yeah. of, a lot more radio channels to transmit it on. Yeah. So there should be a bit more space. So at the moment they're kind of squeezing them in a bit tight. So... Yeah. They tend to interfere with each other a bit. If they had a little bit more space, it should it imp- should it improve it a bit. It's because they can transmit it on the present TV channels. <laughs> so hopefully it will get a bit better. <laughs> Let's hope so. Um, Brian in Royston says, when he opens a packet of cigarettes, the outside covering always sticks to his fingers, and however much he shakes his hand, it sticks, and I eventually have to pull it off. Is this caused by a form of electricity, Dr Dave? Simple answer is yes. It's called static electricity. All that means is that the electrons aren't moving anywhere. Normally the electricity in your house, the electrons are flowing in a current static electricity they're pretty much stationary um similar to when you if you rub a your a jumper on your hair or something like that oh yeah like the balloon thing with rubber balloon on your head the balloon will stick to the wall and stay up there for a few minutes depending on the weather exactly the same thing the plastic doesn't conduct electricity very well so if it picks up a charge as you unwrap it as it rubs on the Mm. packet inside or even on your hand it's going to stay on the plastic and so it's going to be charged probably negatively charged and then that's going to attract you um, it's going to attract the positive charges inside your hand and they're going to get, try and stick to you all the time. It's a weird thing because you can get electric charges off people, can't you? Because my daughter and I, when she comes round and, you know, I'll go and get, to give her a hug and suddenly it's like thrown back because we're electric and we always laugh about it. But it's, but it's only with the younger one. The older one seems to be fine. <laughs> Probably depends on what kind of shoes she's wearing. Ah! Because if she's got very, if um, the young, younger one's got very r- rubber-soled shoes, which yeah. uh, insulate her very well, she can pick up a chart. Always up a trainers, charge, yeah. Always very tra- trainers, yeah. yeah. Trainers will insulate you really well. If she picks up a chart, she's gonna, it's going to stay there, especially on a dry day. So the older one's wearing leather-soled shoes or something that conducts slightly well. So any static charge she picks up will gently seep away to, th- to the ground, and so she won't charge up. It's all in your shoes. Uh, let's say good evening. I think it's Alan. What have you got to ask? The question is uh, about bananas. If you've got a banana and it's it's a fresh banana and chances are it's going to be a bit green, and then over a sh- very short period of time, and I think it's temperature that, that does it, it starts to almost decompose, I suppose, as it ripens. But the same um, sugars are in it at the beginning when it's green, and it doesn't taste sweet. Yeah. Uh, but as it then changes in form, um, it becomes sweeter and uh, nicer to eat, and then it gets to a point where... 
you wouldn't want to touch it because it's mm. gone black. Mm. Now, what process is taking place there and how can you not taste the sugars when it's green, but you can taste them once it's starting to ripe? And what is, nothing's added or taken That's, away, yeah. and yet it seems like a completely different food. What's going on here is that, I mean, it started off with a banana, it's, if it actually had seeds, there are relatives of the normal banana which actually have seeds, um, they're slightly they're developing and it wants to be, it doesn't want to get eaten at this point, so it's green and it doesn't want to be tasty, so um, it's, it has lots of sugar in it, but the sugar's locked up in starch, mm. lots of sugar molecules all in great big long chains, sometimes branching, so, so they're great, so um, there's a great big sort of lump of um, sugar all glued together. When it's glued together, it doesn't trigger off the sweet sensors in your mouth um so you, it doesn't taste sweet so in the same way that bread doesn't normally taste sweet mm. and also things like potatoes then they've got lots of sugar in them lots of carbohydrate in yeah. them but it's all locked up in these great big long starch chains then as it starts to uh, as the seeds in it would be getting ripe and red so as they could develop into new banana tree then the, it wants to suddenly become nice and tasty, and so it stops being green. The chlorophyll gets removed from the surface, so it stops looking green, and it's just left with a bright yellow colour underneath. And these long starch molecules get chopped up by enzymes. You've actually got um, enzymes, are little kind of um, molecules which your body makes, or, an or animals, or in this case, of, um, bananas making, which will help chemical reactions along. This one chops up the starch molecule into much shorter things, which are now sweet. Um, and this makes it much more attractive to animals. So, so they'll go, all oh, lovely sweet thing, and they'll eat it, eat the um, seeds inside, swallow mm. them, and then comes out the other end, lots Shit. of nice fertiliser, and the banana tree's got a great start in its life. So, yeah, it's... Uh, in fact, you have similar enzymes inside your mouth, in your spit. It's one called amylase, um, which um, splits up starch. And actually, if you get some very white bread and chew it for a long time, it actually will start to taste slightly sweet. It tastes horrible, but there's a slight sweet taste mm. tinge to it. Mm. And that's the amylase inside your spit, breaking it down and turning it into sugar. So the whole process, I mean, from, you know, sort of day one, can you slow this down anyway or speed it up? Is temperature <coughs> a, a factor in this? Temperature is a factor. Um, one of the biggest factors actually is other bananas because one of the triggers for bananas to become ripe is a molecule called um, ethene. Um, and this is released by one banana stalk, um, which is why they tend to get ripe from the, st from the stalk downwards. Mm. As a, one banana ripens, it makes all the other, releases this gas, and all the other bananas pick it up and think, oh, I should be ripening as well. So a whole hand of banana will ripen at the same sort of time. So if you kept them individual separately, then you could slow it down that way as well? Yeah, you? that would help. Yeah, I mean, I think cooling it down doesn't help too much because bananas aren't really designed for low temperatures, so it can actually damage them. Putting them in the fridge doesn't necessarily help. But, yeah, separating them would be a really good plan. Put them on a nice... That would be outside on a nice windy day so it could blow, the, blow that uh, um, ethene away very quickly. That's interesting. So if you were to have, a, say, in front of a fan, taking that gas away would give them a longer life... In other words, ventilation is one of the good yeah, things for it. Yeah, ventilation would be a good thing. You can actually use bananas to encourage the ripening of other fruits as well. well I've heard of that one before, yes. Yeah, because the ethene will, get, will cause things like tomatoes to ripen, the same sort of, react, the same sort of um, processes in the tomato. They also use um, the, the same gas to trigger their ripening. So you shouldn't keep bananas on a fruit bowl you should keep them separate from other fruits, otherwise they'll go off quicker. You're probably right, yeah, unless, well, you're, unless, unless you want it to ripen quickly, of course. Oh, yeah. 
Thank you. Bye. Right, a quick one here uh, from another Alan on email who says, um, I'm familiar with the concept of absolute zero and the Kelvin scale. If glass absorbs infrared, how does the inside of the greenhouse get hot in the first place? Help, because he wants to explain it. OK, so basically, how does a greenhouse work? The sun gives out all sorts of, uh, it gives out lots of different um, colours of light. There's all the ones you can see, all the colours of the rainbow, and there's lots of others. So there's all the visible light, which you can see. And there's a load of infrared, which has got a longer wavelength, which is just beyond the visible light. And, and then quite a long way down there, there's the thermal infrared, which is what you give off normally. Because you're glowing in a kind of colour of light called thermal infrared. Yeah. You may have seen the thermal imaging cameras. Um, yes. Those are actually looking at you glowing in the thermal infrared. So um, you, you, the reason why you cool down normally is you're glowing in infrared that's giving out energy. In a greenhouse, it's opaque to the thermal infrared, uh-huh. but will let light through. So it will let the light in, which will put lots of energy in, heat up the ground, but then it will stop the thermal infrared getting out on the way out. So the heat can't get out, so it traps heat in and the greenhouse warms up. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget, you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. 